Today is Juneteenth, a chance to celebrate freedom. It marks the day in 1865 when a quarter of a million enslaved people in Texas finally found out that they were free. It's a strange holiday this year, though. As Black people, we're still fighting for our safety and for our rights, basic rights, more than 150 years after the first Juneteenth. It's depressing. Many things have brought us to this moment, police brutality, COVID invading our communities, and President Trump's disastrous handling of this pandemic, and his instinct to divide us. Protests are planned for today like any other day this month. In Atlanta and Washington, D.C., thousands will march. In New York City and Tulsa, thousands will march. But this Juneteenth is a little different. Van Newkirk II once wrote that Juneteenth has always had a contradiction at its core. It's a second Independence Day, braided together with reminders of ongoing oppression. This year, that's as true as ever. Today is bitter, and it's sweet. Some will take to the streets and demand change. Others will eat barbecue and Zoom with their elders. It's a time to share a little joy, but also remember how far we have to go and that we have to make sure we're headed in the right direction. How do we figure that out? There's just no leadership. I think it's a protest against a a leadership vacuum, frankly. From Neon Hum Media, this is Telescope. I'm Catherine St. Louis. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we bring you stories from people who are far away, up close, and how each of us are learning to live through this moment and this pandemic. Today, I'm interviewing longtime journalist Soledad O'Brien about how the media narrative on police brutality is changing and how our view of policing is evolving as a result. She's the host of Matter of Fact, a talk show syndicated all over the country. And she recently made a podcast with us here at Neon Hum called Murder on the Towpath. It's set in 1960s Washington, D.C., and it's about a Black man accused of killing a white woman and the Black woman who would become his lawyer. A lot of the story is all too relevant today. Soledad O'Brien has been a journalist for almost three decades, long enough that she's not terribly surprised by much anymore. But recently, a lot of Twitter friends have been reaching out to her. Easily 20 people have sent me notes saying, I am a middle-aged white guy, and I'm not Mr. Law and Order, but I always felt like, listen, if the cops are coming, you know, if you're running from a crime scene, you probably did something. If the cops are tasing you, you probably did something. And all of them said, I just cannot believe what I'm seeing. For years, Black Lives Matter activists have been raising the alarm about police brutality. But in the last few weeks, that message has gone viral. A huge number of Americans started agreeing things are out of control. It's hard to watch the video of George Floyd's murder and not see how chillingly calm the officer was for almost nine minutes as he took George's life. Since then, 
Protests have spread to all 50 states, and videos of cops arresting and assaulting people with little to no cause, they've spread just as fast. Officers in riot gear have pepper-sprayed protesters, shot rubber bullets at them, a lot of it on camera. And I think the police, in many cases, have made their case about police brutality in a way that many people who didn't believe it was a thing now are horrified. Cops are supposed to protect and serve. It's right there in the motto. But not all of us get protection. Black people are seen as suspects even when it's their shop being looted. There was a really interesting story about a family in Van Nuys, I believe, where it's a two-minute and 20-second video. And the reporter is there with them, interviewing them. Looters are going through their stores. This black family is like, cop cars go by. Stop, stop, help us, help us, all on camera. The cop cars keep driving. But soon after, they turn around. The family waves their arms in the air to flag them down. And they're relieved when the cops finally show up. Family's like, oh my goodness, the cops are here. The cops proceed to arrest the black people who own the business and let the looters go. Cameras are rolling. There's a Fox reporter at the scene, and she tries to explain to cops that the black people they're handcuffing aren't the criminals, but they brush her off. Whoa. They're, they're protecting the stores. Our looters are over there. Stand down for a sec, please. Yeah, relax. You're losing your looters. We're they're taking them that way. These are the people in the stores right to stop. Point, point. All three of them. Okay, the, we're putting those in handcuffs right now. Dude, no, 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 no. They're not the looters. Hey, one person talk. Where's okay. the looter? Where's the looter? Where's the looter? Where's the looter? And it was interesting because it was, I thought, wow, this is probably the the most concise two minutes and 20 seconds. I don't think I could have told a story that well. I think it is understanding who the police are there to protect. And the Van Nuys black family is a perfect example. They run up and the first thing they do is assess the situation and these black people couldn't be the owners. They must be the suspects. All of these pieces are are not individual and disconnected. They're all connected and they're connected in a narrative around who gets the benefit of the doubt and who gets to be seen as someone who's guilty and who gets to be seen as someone who's inherently innocent. And then there's the video of two officers in Buffalo in riot gear. They shove a 75-year-old protester so hard you can hear his skull crack as it hits the pavement. The elderly man was hospitalized with a brain injury. The story really became uh, that the police department put out a release that he fell, when clearly you could watch the video and see he was pushed, and you could watch the blood leach out of his head and onto the street, and you could even see police officers, some who bent down to help him, kind of be moved along by their colleagues. Videos like this one put police bias and violence on vivid display. But they also offer an unvarnished view of how some cops think. It's us against them, cops versus citizens. And that realization has galvanized a lot of Americans who maybe didn't see police brutality as a problem before. This moment where people are like, this is insane. I actually agree that this seems to be open season on Black people, if they're jogging, sleeping, um, even if you think that there's a a fabricated $20 bill, um, 
or a birder who's, you know, chastising the woman to keep her dog on the leash. You know, I think it's just opened a lot of people's eyes. So I think that's made the marches become very multiracial. And that in turn has sort of opened people's eyes. Like this is an American problem. So I think those videos are so powerful. Certainly they spread on social media, but they're covered in mainstream media because they really tell a better story than if you had five and a half minutes to script something. And they're also having an effect on journalists. I think they're forcing media to tell a different narrative. How do you possibly look at what the release is? The Buffalo Police Department says the man fell. And then you go back and you look at the video where he's literally pushed hard by an officer. You can see it. It's becoming clear that what we're living through is more than a political disagreement. It's another civil rights movement a moment of national reckoning. Black people have long known we don't enjoy the same rights as everyone else. But for a lot of white people, this is the moment to come to grips with that underlying inequality. Human rights are absolute. They're not up for discussion. But that's the opposite of how black rights have been treated thus far. Not just by police, but also by the media. One reason for that is the long-standing rule in newsrooms that journalists are supposed to remain objective. We're supposed to just report the facts, keep our opinions to ourselves. Definitely don't tweet them. But lately, some journalists, and particularly Black journalists, are calling that objectivity a sham. Objectivity is bullshit. I mean, it always has been. It's, it's much more of don't give away the idea that you have a position on this if you're going to go cover the story. But after the New York Times published an op-ed online that called for the military to suppress protests, hundreds of Times journalists publicly spoke out. Nicole Hannah-Jones tweeted, I'll probably get in trouble for this, but to not say something would be immoral. As a Black woman, as a journalist, as an American, I'm deeply ashamed that we ran this. In the ensuing days, the op-ed editor, James Bennett, resigned. After it came out, he hadn't even read the piece before it was published. Journalists have long been arguing amongst themselves about objectivity. But now the argument is becoming a public discussion about whether it should still be a bright-line rule in this moment. There are some issues that just don't have two sides. Like child abuse. Nobody's arguing for the other side, for the right to beat kids. Some Black journalists are taking that stance with racial injustice. It's a very white perspective to say, well, there are two points of view on this. And I think what the journalists are pushing back on is you are showing your bias, white editor, white journalist, with that point of view, right? So you should recognize that it's not that I have bias, it's that you have a bias too. Your worldview on it says something in the way that you were raised. On a recent segment of the NPR show 1A, producer Morgan Givens went a step further. We cannot ignore the fact that media in this, this, this country, uh, specifically white journalistic institutions, have an inability to recognize the white supremacist system for what it is and an inability to put that in the historical context so that people actually understand what is happening right now in our country. So to say that we can only give people the facts, what good do facts do me? What good does knowing one plus one equals two do me if I do not know what to do with two? 
Recently, the Philadelphia Inquirer ran an article with the headline, Buildings Matter Too. It's a play on the slogan of the Black Lives Matter movement, of course. But it felt like the paper was equating Black lives to buildings. The executive editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer resigned over that headline. Newsrooms generally have a white worldview. Police are good. Military's good. America's good all the time, right? And so these are the norms that I think have been shaken up a lot. And so when someone says, well, the way you can frame the police is that maybe not all cops are are good, but, but it's just a few bad apples, right? Now, that's been the new movement. But then you watch these videos and you say, well, that literally was... 57 people from the the Buffalo Police Department resigned. Soledad is referring to the 57 Buffalo police officers who left that department's emergency response team in protest. They were outraged that the two officers who shoved the 75-year-old man to the ground were suspended. To be clear, they were protesting the punishment, not the crime. For Soledad, it's hard not to extrapolate. So it's not a few bad apples. Is it 57 bad apples? Well, if it's 57, then it might be 100. So I guess I would just say that this idea that there's this magic objectivity, it really is, no, that's a white perspective on things that makes white people feel comfortable. On top of personal bias, there's also a bias the media itself has. It can be boiled down to, if it bleeds, it leads. If a protest gets violent, it moves to the A block. A protest that is not violent stays in the C block or maybe the kicker in a half hour show your E block. And actually it wasn't until the protest became violent that coronavirus as a story got moved out of the way and this became the top story. The way Soledad sees it, the protests are a reaction to the pandemic too. And she's not just talking about the fact that a lot of people are unemployed. I also think people are frustrated and mad, and I have no data for this, but I think people are also just protesting how screwed up it is. The response to the coronavirus is a non-response. We all hunkered down over the last three months to flatten the curve and to buy ourselves time to let our government come up with a plan. And though we succeeded in slowing the virus down, that plan, it never quite came together. So why am I the idiot who's wearing my mask and not going to work when everybody else is? We're calling all these people on the front lines of COVID-19 heroes. How does a paramedic who's sleeping in her bed get assassinated by the police? How? How is that, how is that possible and no one's going to pay for that? How is that possible in America? Soledad is talking about the murder of Breonna Taylor in her own home. Louisville police officers used a battering ram to get in, had a brief altercation with her boyfriend, and then shot her dead in her sleep. Breonna, George Floyd, COVID. All this is making a lot of Americans ask themselves, who's in charge? Who's supposed to be the person protecting us and advocating for for the regular people who don't want to be beaten up by the cops, who want to get their jobs back, who don't want to catch coronavirus, who don't want to get a massive bill if you do catch coronavirus, who want to make sure, like, yes, everyone should go back to work, but also 
no one should die. How do we figure that out? There's just no leadership. I think it's a protest against a, a leadership vacuum, frankly. It seems to me that we will get COVID under control before we get racism under control. But who's to say? There's no question you're going to have a vaccine for coronavirus way before you figure out racism because people benefit from racism. And and I think you have a president, frankly, who understands that flailing and fanning the flames of bigotry and racism, there's 39% of the population that really likes it, that really, really likes it. Last week, Trump announced he would be holding a rally in Tulsa on June 19th, the first of its kind since a lot of America went on lockdown. For some, that might not seem like a big deal. But today is June 19th. It's Juneteenth, a holiday that celebrates the end of slavery in America. For a lot of Black people, it's the real 4th of July. And Tulsa, Oklahoma, it was the site of a race riot in 1921. White mobs slaughtered Black residents. The records vary, but somewhere between 50 and 300 people were killed. More than 1,000 homes and businesses were destroyed. And by the time it was all over, the prosperous neighborhood of Greenwood, a kind of Black Wall Street, was in flames. Trump's decision to have a rally on Juneteenth in Tulsa, of all places, caused an uproar. The man is a genius at marketing. Everybody was talking about it. And then, just like that, President Trump postponed it by a day. It's now planned for tomorrow. I think that's the only thing he's good at is the leveraging the marketing. And he recognizes that, you know, there's an upside in not being decent because it'll appeal to a lot of people and the media will run around and cover you. None of this is new. And lately, President Trump hasn't been shy about encouraging force against protesters. You have to dominate. If you don't dominate, you're wasting your time. They're going to run over you. You're going to look like a bunch of jerks. You have to dominate. You have to arrest people, and you have to try people. And they have to go to jail for long periods of time. Juneteenth is a black holiday. But it's 2020. You'd think by now every American could get behind celebrating the end of slavery. Who could possibly be against, like, celebrating the end of slavery? But... I, you know, people are. It's to leverage that into a discussion around Black people getting something, doing something, getting more. Right? We know through polling that people will even be against benefits for themselves if they think Black people are going to have access to those benefits. That's how deeply ingrained racism is. It's been a long month. All these issues have piled up one on top of the other. People are unhappy. And I think people are, you know, I think people just feel like the country is a mess. It's a mess. And it's a mess in a lot of ways that it shouldn't be a mess, you know? And so I, I think that's very disheartening for people. Yet there's a shift happening in America. Racial injustice is being talked about in workplaces. Companies like Nike and Twitter are giving employees the day off for Juneteenth. Books like White Fragility and How to Be an Anti-Racist are at the top of the New York Times bestsellers list. Protests keep happening, not just in the city where George Floyd was murdered, but around the world and across America, in small towns and in big cities. 
And so I do think it's a little bit different because I think the entire country is involved in this conversation. Historically, it's always been the people of Ferguson. Oh, what's happening over there? Oh, in Ferguson, let me explain to you the issues. Oh, here's what's happening in Flint. Let me explain to you the issue. Oh, here's what's happening in in, uh, LA and here's the issue there. And let me just give some context. But here, the entire country is feeling like we're watching it unfold. And you can only gaslight people so much. They, They see it happening. Recently, Black people have been telling stories on social media of how their workplaces have underpaid them and sidelined them. And a lot of folks are telling their stories of racial injustice in public. Every Black guy I know has had, has had a story about being stopped by the cops. Every, every single one. Soledad's brother was one of them. While he was in medical school, he and two friends were stopped by police at a Brooklyn party. Someone had knocked over a toll taker's booth. The police took all of her brother's stuff, dropped it out on the street, and then made him and his friends lie on the ground. And he said, you know, at the end when they realized that they weren't the guys, he said the thing that was most painful to him was that no one bothered to apologize. Like, hey, dude, sorry, we got the wrong guys, but I'm sure you understand we're trying to keep everybody safe. There was just, screw it. Like Soledad said, not being decent is encouraged. It's a message coming from the top. But some cops have known that for a lot longer than Trump's presidency. And I think it was that dismissive sense of, you are utterly irrelevant. I don't care if you're a doctor or a medical student or a whatever. Like, it literally doesn't matter. At this moment, I have power over you. You are nothing. You are nothing if I say you're nothing. And I just remember he was so mad and he just was like, how do you not apologize? They made us lie in the dirt and ditched all the stuff out of my my duffel bag. And no one said, dude, our bad, sorry. That's all he wanted. It's never easy to keep your cool when you're accused of a crime you didn't commit. But he didn't really have a choice. Soledad's brother walked away angry, but he walked away. And I don't think people really understand that sense of fury, right? Of like, I'm doing nothing and it's okay to stop me. That guy is jogging through a neighborhood and you will kill him just because, right? I mean, it's just, it's just craziness. It's just craziness. But I think maybe um, too many people, you know, you get to a point where it's just too many people. And if they're doing this while the cameras are rolling, then what happens when the cameras aren't rolling? Thanks to Soledad O'Brien for joining me today. You can hear more from Soledad on our podcast, Murder on the Towpath, available on Luminary. Or you can watch her show, Matter of Fact. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? No. Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. 
The wounds of the last several weeks are still very raw, and new wounds are inflicted every few days. Since the death of George Floyd, both Richard Brooks and Tony McDade have died at the hands of police. In Southern California, two black men were found hanging from trees within a two-week period, barely 50 miles away from each other. Police initially ruled Robert Fuller's death a suicide, while they brushed off Malcolm Harsh's death, saying there was no foul play. It's impossible to say for sure, but it's hard not to think that the outrage over these men's deaths is the only reason investigations in those cases began. At protests around the country, their names are now carried on signs and chanted aloud, Malcolm Harsh, Robert Fuller. Malcolm Harsh, Robert Fuller. This is the fourth week of daily protests against police brutality. But you may not know that from looking at the news headlines. The protests have become larger and more diverse, and in some places more white. The police have notably pulled back from the brutal tactics that brought them national attention a little more than a week ago. And as Soledad predicted, as the protests have become more peaceful, they've moved to the back burner. But protesters are still showing up. Last Sunday, thousands took to the streets in L.A. to march against police brutality. The Los Angeles Pride Parade had initially been canceled because of concerns about COVID-19. But as protesters all around the country demanded justice, the event became a march for intersectionality and solidarity, an affirmation that all Black lives matter. Ruth Davis was there. She drove down from Oxnard, a little north of Los Angeles, with her fiancé, Stacy McAllister. She recorded herself and the march throughout the day. And we're going to share some of that here. Hi, it's Ruth Davis. Today is June 14th. The time is 9.47 a.m. Me and my fiancé, Stacy McAllister, are on our way to L.A. Pride. Uh, it's kind of dope because this year, because of the Black Lives Matter movement, they're standing in solidarity um, you know, with Black Lives Matter. And it's bringing awareness to the inequalities in our social system, justice system, school system, just pretty much everything American at this point. And I'm noticing it's, it's a lot of different type of people here. It's not, um, you know, just Black people headed to this march. It's, it's every, everybody. And most notably, it's a lot of white people, like a lot of white people. And I have kind of mixed feelings about it. it. It's not a negative feeling, but I don't know exactly how to articulate how it makes me feel being at a, a march that's dedicated to black lives and seeing mostly white people. Because a part of me feels like if there's so many of y'all that care about our lives, why do these things keep happening? Don't get me wrong, I definitely feel like a good majority of, of the non-black people that are here are, are, like, genuine. But as a black person who's experienced tons of racism, I'm, I'm shocked at the number of people here that aren't black. Yeah, the sun is like, oh, you thought summer was, wasn't here yet? Hold my beer. <laughs> 
So it looks like the parade's actually about to start. Well, a parade, it's not a parade. It's definitely not a parade. Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter! One thing I did notice, like I've been to Pride before, and I love coming, you know, because I think everyone, regardless of who the fuck they are, who they love, what they look like, what they have, what they don't have, what they want, what they don't want, I believe everyone deserves equal rights. So that's why I come. Um, and then on top of that, you know, the makeup, the outfits, the hair, you know, I'm into that, so I love seeing it. And, and this year's Pride today, um, you're not seeing a lot of that. Now there are a few people here, you know, wearing certain costumes and colors and materials that are like loud and vibrant and shimmery, but it is uh, significantly less than in, in past years. Um, tutus are actually being replaced with masks that say I can't breathe or shirts that say my color is not a weapon or hands up don't shoot or Black Lives Matter. It's 10.59, and I'm looking at a sign that says, from Stonewall to Minneapolis, it is right to be free. I'm seeing signs that say, unite to defend trans lives, shut down ICE now. boyfriend and it kind of hit home for me because I have a cousin who's half black and half white and you know we grew up together her father was white and he treated me and, and my cousins like family like we were family him that was Uncle Billy um, but for anyone outside of his black circle we heard him call our friends porch monkeys and niggers and things like that. And my cousin's mom never held him accountable for that shit. So I, I think it's possible for someone to have a, a partner of color and still be racist. And that's the conversation that really needs to be had. So someone decided to put Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech dubbed over like dubstep, electro dance music, and the level of disrespect I feel, like two things, like one, I know the intent behind it was, you know, to, to make people feel good and to give the speech a vibe. So I know there was no malintent mal behind, you know, the mix of it, but like the speech on its own is powerful enough. You didn't need to add the music behind it, and I think it kind of like fucks with the integrity of the message, you know? Like, ah, I just wish they didn't do that. Oh my God, there's a plane. There's a little plane up and it says, it has a banner that says Black Lives Matter, and then right behind it is a LAPD helicopter. Um, but again, I have not seen one uniform officer. I have not seen one patrol car, squad car. I haven't seen any visible signs of police presence other than the helicopters. When the protests were predominantly black people, like the others that I've been to, the police presence is heavily felt 
and seen as well as military. After the protests were over, we asked Ruth to reflect on how she was feeling. She talked about her fiancé, Stacy. My fiancé is 6'6", 220 pounds, black male. Um, the other day I was cooking dinner, and we have a bodega around the corner from our house. And I was like, hey, sweetheart, can you, you know, run and get me these ingredients for dinner? And... He, you know, puts his hoodie on, basketball shorts, throws on some slides, you know, just to go around the corner. And I literally was like, nah, I will feel more comfortable if you just drove your car. But I was like, no, I need you to drive your car. And it, it turned into, I'm not going to say an argument, but it was a, like, why do I have to drive my car? And, you know, I'm literally fussing at him. And I started crying and I was like, I know you. The, you know, I, I know you're not going to do anything. I know you're not armed. I know you don't sell drugs. I know you don't use drugs. I know you're not a criminal. You don't have a history. You've never even been arrested. But you're a big black man wearing a hoodie in a predominantly white neighborhood. I don't want you to walk. I think I've had enough of marches and protests. I feel like they've evolved into more of a spectacle instead of a sign of solidarity or or a sign of I don't know I, I just I, I think these have become backdrops for Instagram photos these protests have become creative content for subscribers I don't know what side of history I'm going to be on by attending these things, you know? Thanks to Ruth for sharing her story with us. Telescope is made possible by the world-class team of producers, editors, and engineers that make up Neon Hum Media. I'm proud to work with each and every one of you. John Asante is the managing producer of Telescope. Today's episode was produced by Tanner Robbins and reported by Kate Mishkin and me. It was edited by Vikram Patel and Jonathan Hirsch. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Thanks to Matt McGinley for our theme music and to Blue Dot Sessions for additional tracks you hear on this episode. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Neon Hum Media or join us on Facebook by searching for Telescope. We want to stay connected to you during this unprecedented time in our history. So don't be shy. Share your stories with us, and our DMs are always open. If you have a story about how you're battling the two viruses right now, racism and coronavirus, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at pitches at neonhum.com. I'm Catherine St. Louis. Have a great weekend. <laughs>